We continue in our reading of Matthew tonight. Not a very lengthy passage at all, verses 14 through 17. Let us pray together. Our gracious God, upon the reading of your word tonight and its preaching, we come to ask for your help. We pray, O Lord, that by the merits of Jesus Christ, you would grant your spirit to work mightily and effectively among each one gathered here tonight, each one hearing, whether young or old, Lord, whether long in the faith or new, we pray that you would come and minister to us. We pray that you would come and speak to us, that you would shepherd us, that you would give us that which is necessary to not rest in the vain things of the earth, to not rest in the vanities of the flesh, but to rest in Jesus Christ by faith. To know him, to know him as our all in all, to know him as our everything, to know him as he is and means to be known. So Lord, come and help us to the praise of your beloved Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 9, verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. This is God's word. In our passage tonight, we are confronted by something we are always needing to be confronted by. We are confronted by the centrality and the exclusivity of Jesus Christ to all the habits and all the activities and all the ambitions of the religious life. He is central. He is exclusive. Any kind of religious life that a man could have where Jesus is not the central and exclusive center is, of, is no religious life that is honorable to God or useful to man. And not just the religious life, but the entirety of all human life. Jesus is what all human life is about. Jesus is what all religious life is about because Jesus himself fulfills every vocation of man because he is the true Adam and the true Israelite and the true worshiper and the true obedient son and the true wisdom and the true love. He is the true power and the true beginning. He is the true end of all things. He is what everything is about. 
There is no such thing as a human existence anywhere that is not about Jesus Christ. He is what everything is for. You see, Jesus is like the gold standard, or if you like, he is a golden yardstick. Against him, everything will be measured and everything will be discovered to be either right or wrong, good or bad, wise or foolish, worthy or unworthy, saved or damned, truth or error, old or new. Jesus is the center and the circumference of all things, for all things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, it is often the case that people will, by God's grace, end up discovering about Jesus all that I have just said about him. And when they do discover it, it will liberate them. It will change them and compel them in many new directions, giving them more peace than they have ever experienced before and giving them more initiative than they have ever had before. But often, before people discover Jesus is the true and eternal center and circumference of all things, they have to first be confronted with how something else has been central to their life. And this confrontation must come from a revelation of Jesus Christ himself. The the titanic weight of glory, which is possessed by Jesus as Son of God and Son of Man, must come out of the fog in which a man has been living and shine on that man in this transformative and converting confrontation. Because only then are two things simultaneously seen. One, that something vain was at the center of one's life. Two, that Jesus himself will now always be the center of life. Now, in the passage right before you, this is what is happening. Jesus is coming out of the fog with his titanic glory to capture hearts, to capture minds, to capture wills of men who are currently captured by something far less. Verse 14 tells us that the men who have come to speak with Jesus are disciples of John the Baptist. They are confused or frustrated or angry or an omelet of all three. They may even be, they may even be in a deep state of sinful opposition toward Jesus because he is not doing things the way they are doing things, and his not doing things the way they are doing things adds more debates and disputes in their lives than they want. Now, the reason we might have cause for a dark, brooding view of these disciples of John the Baptist is not because of something with John the Baptist. 
The reason we may have cause for a dark, brooding view of these disciples is because of two things. First, because of where Matthew locates this exchange in his narrative report. He has these men coming to challenge Jesus right after Jesus has just been challenged by the Pharisees in 9 verse 11, the whole dinner party at the tax collector's house. But not only that, Matthew has the dinner party challenge right after an earlier challenge in 9.3 with the scribes. So it's scribes at the top of the chapter, then Pharisees, and now the disciples of John who are using the Pharisees as their footnotes for why they behave the way they do. Matthew seems to be making a point that here in several vignettes are the ones who oppose Jesus Christ. So that is one very valid reason to take a dark, brooding view of these disciples of John. The second reason to do so is how they themselves frame their question. Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? The disciples of John present themselves as in cahoots with the righteousness of the Pharisees, which never gets a good word from Jesus. They fast with the same rigor as the Pharisees. Pharisees fasted twice a week. You'll remember the Pharisee praying in Luke 18 up at the temple. Such a fast was not required by the law. But these guys were overachievers. And it was a demonic overachieving. So these disciples of John, it seems quite clear by their question, they esteem the example of the Pharisees more than they esteem the example of Jesus Christ. The whole ugly picture then, which we get from verse 14, is that these disciples of John are far more suspicious of Jesus than they are of the Pharisees. So Calvin may be right that this is the result of some kind of campaign of persuasion by the Pharisees to draw John's disciples in to their fold to produce a quarrel with Christ. Remember, John is in prison at this time. So the Pharisees may be taking wicked advantage here, not only filling the void left by John's absence, but also exploiting the grief of his disciples through a greater religious severity. We can almost hear their speeches, the Pharisees. Look at that, Jesus. He and his disciples are spiritual lightweights. They have no discipline, no rigor. Look at eating, always eating, always drinking with these tax collectors and sinners. Well, beloved, this is a good place to remind you that religious severity always looks more, oppress- more impressive. This is, a, this is like a, something you take to the bank, a two plus two equals four kind of proof. Religious severity always appears more impressive than a simple faith in Jesus Christ. We are more impressed with a religious activist like Martha than we are with a religious rester 
like Mary. And I'm not sure rest is a word in the dictionary. Tonight, we'll make it a word. Martha's getting stuff done, real things. What's Mary producing sitting at Jesus' feet? The Lord says she chose the better portion. Religious severity always looks more impressive than simple faith in Christ. This is why we so often want other people to know about our own religious rigor. People are easily impressed as we are ourselves. But Paul in Colossians 2.23 warns us to watch out for all these regulations that people try to impose upon us instead of leading us back to a simple faith in Christ. Paul says, These regulations, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. His point? Faith in Christ has more power to change the heart than lifting a thousand pounds of religious works does. Now let's look back to our text and hear Jesus' reply to this cheeky question about fasting. And what we see is that Jesus' answer is far more pastoral than it is combative. In other words, he is not as strong and sharp here as he will become later in Matthew 23. Here he is still ministering a gentle shepherding, pulling out his sheep, leaving others to themselves. By the time he gets to Matthew 23, he drops the hammer, and it's just woe after woe after woe on the Pharisees. But here he takes an ironic, not a polemic approach. There's a lesson in that for us too as well. Let us not be quick to assume people are at their hardest place. So Jesus gives three answers to the question that comes from the disciples of John. You see them, verse 15, 16, and 17. In the big picture, all three of our Lord's answers are similar in this one regard. All three address the propriety of a common situation. Now, what does that mean? Propriety. I'm sure you use that word every day. No, you probably don't. Propriety means doing what is appropriate, doing what is correct when in a certain situation. Wearing a clown suit to a funeral is a failure of propriety. Wearing jeans and a dirty t-shirt to a wedding is a failure of propriety, especially if it's your sister's wedding. Take note, someone in the room. Now, there are two reasons someone might practice impropriety, why they often might fail to do what's appropriate. One reason is that they are cruel and careless toward other people, and so they do whatever makes them feel good instead of doing what is good for others. That's one reason people fail propriety. The second reason is that they do not understand the situation they are in, is that, is, that it's a much different situation than the one they think they are in. They are fooled for some reason. 
And it is the second reason that explains the practice of John's disciples. They don't understand the situation. So they have a failure of propriety in their fasting. According to Jesus, in verse 15, John's disciples think it is a time of mourning. Now that's, of course, a very helpful word there for us to remember what fasting is. Fasting is humiliation. It is humiliating ourselves so that we can indeed draw near to God in a sober state of prayerfulness. But John's disciples think it is a time of mourning when it is not a time of mourning. They misread the situation. This is why they are fasting so rigorously as the Pharisees. They are like someone dressed for a funeral when the real situation is they have been invited to a wedding. Jesus says, can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is there? Michael Green has a little helpful paragraph where he exposits the history of a Jewish wedding. He says, at a Jewish wedding, open house was maintained for a week. It was a time of great rejoicing and hospitality, dancing and fun, such as might rarely come into the lives of poor people. And it was all paid for by the bridegroom's family. It was free to all comers. What a description of the kingdom Jesus came to usher in. Can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Come without money. Drink without cost. Fill your belly on the bridegroom's expense. In other words, in gospel language, receive life at the bridegroom's cost. Why is mourning and the habits of mourning inappropriate? Because the bridegroom is Jesus Christ. Jesus is telling John's disciples that his own presence in the world takes away all mourning. Jesus is presenting himself as divine bridegroom. In the prophet Isaiah, we read this about the days of Messiah's visitation. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Psalm 62, 5. Christ has come to his church, not with a sullen frown, not with a scowling countenance, but with a rejoicing countenance. He has come to cleanse her of her sins and crown her with beauty. He has not come to inspect her for sin. He already knows she's filthy. He has come to cleanse her, to wash her, to dress her, to kiss her, to marry her, to carry her into his chamber and unite with her forever. The disciples of John are reading the room completely wrong. They think sin inspection 
is still the season of the hour. No, no. They have not remembered what John himself told them. We'll come to that in a moment. In that same Isaiah passage, our Lord and, Jesus, our Lord and Savior says that he delights in his bride, that he crowns her with beauty. So the guests of the wedding must not mourn if the bridegroom is rejoicing. In the prophet Hosea, we read this, And in that day, Messiah's day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Hosea 2. Those are the gifts of the bridegroom. He he himself possesses that treasure, and he gives that to his bride. She impoverished now? It is not a time for sadness when the bridegroom transfers his property to his bride, his church. Unless, of course, some do not recognize him as the bridegroom. And don't recognize all the signs of a very grand wedding. But in Jesus' answer in verse 15, he is actually helping these men. He has carefully crafted an answer that helps them come to him if they have ears to hear. First, he helps them by saying to John's disciples that he is the bridegroom. That should immediately recall to them something their own master said, John the Baptist, before he was arrested. Before his arrest, John said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John said that. So when Jesus says, I am the bridegroom, they should remember that John was convinced of this himself, and they should withdraw from the Pharisees and set their hope and their joy on Christ. The second thing Jesus says to help the disciples of John is that he predicts his own death. He says the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, some of John's disciples who hear him say this later remember that he said it when he is crucified. And Jesus' ministry in saying this as a prophet, predicting his own forceful taking away, will become a light in their souls that he is a true prophet of God and he is the true bridegroom of God and they will come to saving faith in him. Now, the second and third answers before us, we can move through a little more quickly. Verse 16 and verse 17, both are answers also about propriety, doing the appropriate thing in the correct situation. 
But in these answers, the situation which calls for certain appropriate actions is not a wedding, but how to repair an old garment and how to use old wineskins. It is inappropriate, Jesus says, to patch an old piece of cloth with a new piece of cloth that has been unfold, technical term for not prepared to stretch. And they had a technique for doing this. To do so is to make the old worse, and the new would end up going unused. And it is also inappropriate to put new wine in an old wineskin, for as the new wine ferments, it expands. And in an old wineskin, which has lost its elasticity and is now brittle, it will burst, and the wine will be lost, and the old will be destroyed. New wine must be put in new wineskins. Now, in both of these answers, Jesus is making the point that it is he who brings something so new to the people of God that it is not compatible with the old traditions of the Pharisees. It is not compatible with the old rigor of the self-righteous leaders of Israel. The disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees have seen their religious practices as more substantial than Jesus himself. They have been sizing up Jesus by their own religious habits instead of sizing him up by the very words he has spoken of himself. And why do they size up Jesus by their own religious habits? Because they gain more confidence that they are right before God through their religious practices than they could be right before God through Jesus and a simple faith in Jesus. They have been unable to see that Jesus is the fulfillment and the true substance of all religion. Their faith has been in religious practices instead of Jesus Christ. Their faith has been in their own sin management and austerity instead of Jesus Christ. And so he is a scandal to them, a stumbling stone. But he is trying to, well, he's not trying, right? Strike that word. He is calling some of them to faith. And he speaks of new wine. Interestingly, in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 16, the days of Messiah are described this way. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine in his land. For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. The scriptures say that it is that God has given man wine to gladden his heart. The Lord Jesus Christ gladdens the heart of man in a way that many will see as inappropriate for such sinful people. But this is exactly what Jesus is saying to these disciples of John. Your austerity, your overly scrupulous introspection about your sin 
has kept you from the Savior. Come to me. Take wine. No, no, no. We'll have water, please. You know, when I was a kid, my grandmother used to make these drinks that I think would have peeled paint. When you got sick, she would bring you this thing, and it was bubbling, and you couldn't see through it, and she said, drink. It was an austere drink, severe. Jesus Christ is the new wine for the sinner. What Paul said to Timothy, the Lord Jesus says spiritually to all souls that he saves. Paul, speaking of Timothy's stomach, said, stop drinking only water and take a little wine for your stomach. The Lord Jesus says, stop thinking only about how much your sin condemns you. Think about how much condemnation has been lifted off of you by my blood and righteousness. What is this joy, this excitement, this happiness, this blessedness, this dancing? What does it look like in the life of a Christian? Well, one way you can remember the answer to that question is by remembering three words that begin with the letter P. Paul, poop, and Philippians. Paul, poop, and Philippians. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul lists his austere religious habits and qualifications. And then he says, well, I'll read it to you. What were the three Ps? Paul, poop, and Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. This is a man who knows that Jesus is the bridegroom. And even though the bridegroom was taken away for a season, he has come back, raised from the dead, enthroned to the highest place, with his church till the end of the age, dwelling within them by his spirit, coming again for them in power. They shall never be without his joy, never be without his gladness, never be away from his smile. Philippians 3, Paul, Poop, and Philippians. I was a boy once, so I sometimes like saying that word. Verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as poop in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. What Jesus is saying to the disciples of John is absolutely scandalous. Walk away 
from all your austerity. Walk away from all of your severity. Walk away from all of those false, vain, empty religious traditions that make you think that you are controlling your sin. Come to me by faith alone, and I will empower you in my life to rise up and fight your sin with a valiant heart and a joy, and you will not regret the fight. Because faith, a simple faith in Jesus, does thousands of years more work in the soul of the sinner than 10,000 years of severity and austerity and empty traditions of men. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for how we have seen our Savior as a pastor come to these disciples of John and give those with ears to hear a way home, a way out of the wilderness of the flesh and its vain righteousness. Oh, Lord, we thank you and praise you for how we ourselves have received the ministry of this very word of Jesus Christ, how we have been summoned out of hoping in our religious life for peace with you. We thank you that our faith lays hold of the whole Christ and that in having him we have all the righteousness required not to run and flee back into the world, not to sin even more, but to joyfully and valiantly in the simplicity of faith, in the life and power of Christ in us, to fight against our sin without regret. Lord, we thank you and praise you that now we love the one whom we have drunken. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.